all of these ideas almost literally come spring back to life uh, after the first and second world war in a way mm. they also inform the people who are building um, the european union and of course nowadays when we think about the european union we think about a, a free market project by economists but originally it was a conservative christian democrat project And welcome to another episode of New Work in Intellectual History. I'm joined today by Matthias Locke, Senior University Lecturer at the University of Amsterdam. Before we get started, let me remind you that the podcast is produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. You can find all our podcasts, publications and so on at intellectualhistory.net. That's intellectualhistory, one word, dot net. We lots of things on there, including a recent gem, an interview that Isaac Kramnik did for an American TV documentary uh, back in the early 90s on Thomas Paine that somehow we got access to and it's on there um, and also and I can't condone this there's also an intellectual history crossword for those of you into that sort of thing so Matthias the book is Europe Against Revolution Conservatism Enlightenment and the Making of the Past published by Oxford University Press in spring 2023 is that right yes it is yeah. and uh, so Thank you for that's why I haven't introduced you. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. And could you introduce us to the book, please? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Robin, for this invitation to speak at the podcast. I'm uh, deeply honoured, uh, of course. And the book, the book has been many years uh, in the making. Uh, uh, many years, over ten years, uh, I've been uh, struggling um, uh, writing on it. And the book has grown and has also uh, uh, changed uh, in, in its original uh, contents, but. Uh, my intervention, why I, but you, you're, you're, of course, you're trying to um, get from me from why I did uh, write this book. And of course, I was motivated partially uh, by contemporary events. Uh, of course, we've seen uh, a rise of all kinds of counter-revolutionaries within and without uh, Europe. Uh, this idea of a liberal uh, cosmopolitan world, which seemed to have um, seemed to have uh, uh, seemed to have become the end of history in the 1990s. Of course, was challenged. So I was interested in looking at its ideological origins. That's one uh, reason. Uh, I'm always interested in, in, the, in the relationship between history and politics in, in, in its many different uh, guises. And um, you will see in the book it's about the present, of course, as well. Um, my second reason is more academic. It's always that uh, intellectual historians uh, always have a preference for. Uh, liberalism, enlightenment, more the progressive side of, uh, of, 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 of the history of ideas. And I thought, why don't I take a look at the other, uh, at, the other uh, at, the, at, at the dark side, at the other side, to see what kind of ideas are there. And, and I thought it was uh, missing from, from, from much, uh, from many histories. Um, often the revolution is studied, but not the counter-revolution, enlightenment, but not counter-enlightenment, uh, liberalism, but not illiberalism. So I thought, well, I'll try to combine uh, new intervention in intellectual history, political history, with um, also reflection on more contemporary uh, developments. Fantastic. I mean, I, it's interesting, sort of the, I you know, ironic use of the word the dark side there. Because one of the one of the interesting things <laughs> I've been watching uh, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the interesting things, uh, I suppose, is the uh, the continuity in some cases with counter-revolutionary thought, with that kind of enlightenment reformist kind of position yeah. or if you were I know, this is not your framework and you can push back against me you know um forcing it on top of it but it's sort of israel jonathan israel's moderate enlightenment 
I don't know if there's a through line there seems to then translate into the um, strands of the counter revolutionary position. Um, but the interest with much most scholarship has been towards the sort of the revolutionary side, the side that people would like to identify. I don't know what is that is that going too far that people would like to identify no, no, with is, the... uh, definitely and that's also one of the surprises when I when I started writing the book. I started writing a book actually on 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 counter enlightenment because I was inspired especially by by uh, Darren McMahon's book uh, Enemies of the Enlightenment, which is a really interesting book. It, it shows it, it's I think a very novel and, and new way of, of of studying the enemies of enlightenment, not from a more uh, uh, not not from not defending it, but just seeing them as being interested in being part of the enlightenment. And when I started uh, writing my book, interestingly, um, uh, I, I first uh, I started noticing that the authors I was studying did not only repudiate um, uh, philosophy and, and enlightened ideas, but also tried to use them for their own advantages. So when I started 10 years ago writing my book, I was I thought I was going to write a book on counter-enlightenment and counter-enlightened Europeanism, but it, it changed. So in the end, uh, what I one of the surprising finds, I think, of my book is that how much this Enlightenment legacy was used by these counter-revolutionaries uh, for their own uh, agenda. So I think that that sense, I would, I would, I, would, I'm, I'm, I think, uh, I think Jonathan Israel is an interesting um, uh, scholar. Uh, many ways, for he was one of the first, I think, who also became into in his books on the Enlightenment. He also studies uh, counter-Enlightenment. Um, but my criticism of his work would be that he, in some ways, follows the, the stereotype of the Enlightenment by its 18th century enemies as a purely secular, radical, uh, and in many ways he takes over the stereotyping of its enemy of its 18th century enemies mm -hmm. uh, in its own works. But maybe that becomes a bit too scholarly, uh, if you will. But uh, <laughs> as I said, uh, let's not talk only about other scholars. But what I found interesting is that that these people are not were not just repudiating the Enlightenment, but making their own version of the Enlightenment and using it as a weapon uh, to turn against the revolution. And I think that was one of the surprising uh, findings when I when I started doing did my research for the book. So. The the focus is principally so the opening chapter. We're going to come to the opening chapters uh, in a second, which sort of set up uh, understandings of Europe in like the late 18th century before the revolution. But the the main focus is is it correct to say sort of counter revolutionaries, people writing against the the radical phases of the French Revolution, uh, and then what happens in the decades afterwards from about the 1790s through to the 1820s. That's sort of your yeah, focus. well, again, another. I, I, I thought it started in the middle of the 18th century, and I was trying to. My original idea was to go to the to the present, but uh, I sort of stopped. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't get further than 1830 because there was already so many. Was becoming so complex and so vast. But it's but but it, at its core are counter revolutionaries and counter revolutions. There are many different kind of counter revolutionaries. There's not just one counter revolution, which is another. Uh, many of these authors I studied, they say, okay, we are we are we are counter revolutions that we do not like this idea of a radical break with the past. We do not like this, the, but but revolutionaries they destroy all institutions and start something uh, without knowing where you start from. But they almost all specified that they were not against change as such or against modernization or against progress. They say we like progress, but we think um, the revolutionaries go too far. They destroy too much and they have far too much abstract principles. So they very much specify in that sense there were a particular kind of counter-revolutionaries, but not against all forms. They were not reactionaries or at least they claim uh, not to be. So that's also interesting, a concept like revolution and counter-revolution can have many different meanings. And of course, that's what intellectual historians do to show these different uh, meanings. So they were not against all change, but they 
they rejected this, this idea for very radical rupture they they saw in uh, in the uh, in the French Revolution. Interesting, and the. Uh, you uh, use well the central idea is about different conceptions of Europe what Europe is what it means to be yeah. European I wonder if we could um, if you could uh, you know expand a little on, on that for us please yeah. sure no it's of course hard I mean you start working for many years on a book and you, you try to incorporate many different ideas but if, I think you want to make it a very very really short summary was the way counter-revolutionaries used this idea of an enlightened Europe and of course this idea of an enlightened Europe was already developed before the revolution, this idea of Europe as the endpoint of an historical development of centuries of, of progress, of, of the rise of civilization, of a combination of prosperity, uh, civilization, uh, knowledge, uh, um, and also freedom. They, they have a combination. They, 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 there's a lot of about freedom. For in, I did not expect that too. All this kind of freedom is a key concept for all these people. So the rise of a free, civilized, uh, pluralist society where uh, power was bounded, where moderation was one of the most important virtues, and of course, all part of a Christian um, uh, a Christian uh, framework. And what, what I find interesting, how this, this idea of an enlightened Europe, which was fairly generally um, uh, dispersed, I would say, in the 18th century, became polarized at the end of the 18th century, uh, perhaps a little bit like today. Europe is also becoming a polarized concept. And mm -hmm. I find interesting how this notion of, 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 of Europe as the result of a long historical development and progress became instrumentalized, became used by one particular group of political actors. It became a, a political weapon uh, to be used against revolutionaries. And what, what I find interesting, they say, for instance, the re revolutionaries, they are not Europeans. They are barbarians. Mm -hmm. they, are, uh, they were oftentimes they're called Africans. Someone like Napoleon was called an African in the sense that they were placing themselves outside of this European development. So Europe becomes a tool for counter-revolutionaries to be used against the revolution. And that that that, that, that adoption of this idea for a specific political cause, um, that's that's the main story of my uh, book, uh, yeah. which I try to explain. Uh, using different authors from many different countries, from many different languages, that's more or less the the, the threat and what they say. Okay, and of course the one one uh, yeah. So that's more or less what what they do. Um, and I also try to do it in many ways. Our idea of Europe, this idea of Europe, is often seen as a, a, a the, the, the the historical continent. For instance, if you know Tony Judd's book about mm -hmm. uh, post-war Europe, it's all about Europe as being an historical continent, a continent characterized by pluralism, by moderation. And this particularly definition of the story Europeans tell themselves is, I think. Um, owes a great deal uh, owes a great deal of depth to these counter-revolutionary authors. So they're a little bit the missing link. We're always starting with uh, enlightenment. If, for instance, if you go to the House of European History at Brussels, mm -hmm. um, uh, European history starts with antiquity, then you have humanism, then you have enlightenment, revolution, 19th century industrial revolution, and then modern Europe appears. And what's interesting, this whole this whole uh, detour of the of these counter-revolutionary authors is often overlooked. So what I tried to say, this whole idea of a historically developed continent, it's not an old idea, it's a very new idea. And and uh, my argument is here is that these counter-revolutionaries uh, conceived of that idea as part of the ideological struggle, as part of these cultural wars with the revolutionaries. That's my argument. Mm, interesting. And it, so what is the, I think we're possibly just going to, uh, we might repeat ourselves a little bit, but what are the... Uh... What's the inheritance that they are picking up on? Or what are they uh, appropriating 
Uh, she's often your word, from the Enlightenment itself, like the Enlightenment yeah. account. Oh, that's, of... a, that's a certain idea. I, I think it has five or six characteristics. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a uh, Europe, Europe is a continent determined by a long, gradual history, a history of improvement, of, 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 of a history of civilization. Um, and also this idea of a certain uniqueness in the world, which is characterized by, by freedom. Uh, it is above all a very free um continent uh, it has this unique freedom which could not be found in antiquity where for instance the romans were just uh, despotic people uh, they're not uh, but also of course in asian uh, monarchies um, are seen as very despotic and there's also this idea of a boundedness of power which is often uh, uh, a boundedness of power which is uh, um, uh, seen as a unique uh, characteristics and i think What's very uh, specific of this group of people that they, I've studied, and they're not one group, but they're very, uh, but they all focus on institutions. That Europe has a set of institutions. Um, a good example, I think, is also Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke is, I think, also interesting. He also is part of this. I would consider to be part of this this group of um, this idea. And what interesting, Burke is often seen as an English author, an English mm -hmm. writer. But I think in many ways he was much more European. And this whole European uh, nowadays, of course, uh, people like Richard Burke, who has, who has written this beautiful book on uh, on, uh, on on Eppenberg, uh, of mm -hmm. course, has emphasized the imperial dimension and the English dimension. But I think the whole European aspect, the European uh, Burke, has disappeared over side. So this idea, and, and in that sense, their difference, I would say, from humanists in the sense that they focus on institutions. And Europe is a set of institutions which mm -hmm. develops overnight. I think i delve into some of these in a little bit more detail, maybe. So the counter-revolutionaries are accusing the uh, French Revolution of undermining, for example, the unique form of freedom that Europe um, benefits yeah. from. Can you say, what is that unique form of freedom? What is, well, is again, again, the character? Again, I also find it so interesting. Also, we tend to think about freedom always as a liberal concept or mm -hmm. very progressive one, but it is, it's equally a concept which is used by, by, by their opponents. Uh, they, they use freedom a lot, but they use it in this very specific way. For them, freedom is above all the rule of law and the idea that the power is bounded. And what interestingly, their argument is that the monarchy is the best guarantee for freedom and the church. Mm -hmm. The church, it's the monarchy which actually creates this free civilization. Um, and but but their main argument against revolutionaries, in that sense, there are some interesting lineages towards more contemporary conservatives, is the idea that the revolution, although it is in the name of freedom, in fact creates a very despotic state. Mm -hmm. This idea of an all-powerful state which uh, encroaches in the private lives. Again, this is also, of course, which is uh, in contemporary um, debates comes to the fore. This idea that the state is, is something uh, uh, is an all-powerful despotic state which defends your uh, so it's not uh, they say the revolution uh, on the one hand it's it's the despotism of the state and of course Napoleon is a good example of that on the other hand they say it's anarchy it's anarchy and despotism at the same time and opposite this whole picture of anarchy and despotism there is this idea of a more historically grown. Uh, uh, freedom, which is more embedded into historical institutions such as the church and the, um, some of another uh, author I've studied was Joseph de Mestre. Um, mm -hmm. He's a Sardinian diplomat, and for him it was the church who, uh, who uh, imported uh, freedom in uh, in, um, in European history. So on the one hand, he, he, uh, that's interesting. He, he turns the whole the, the the narrative of the Enlightenment around. He's, of course, many Enlightened scholars. I said it was the church who destroyed freedom in Europe, but he said no. Uh, he defends the role of the church not only because it's true, but also they are the bringers of freedom and civilization to the mm -hmm. European uh, continent.
So, but it's interesting. So they use the language, but then they use it very specifically. They use it to defend monarchy, to defend the church. Uh, so they use the same words as it were but the, the meaning of course mm. is entirely different uh, one yeah there's a passage in your i think this is right there's a passage where you um refer to that's a sort of a skinnerian uh I, I, to my mind, I, I of think, course yeah i'm yeah. a great fan of course but, but it's be, but yeah. it's the um political debate is debate about the meaning of certain concepts and so yeah. that the, the counter-revolutionaries are trying to put their positives spin on certain concepts that they think the revolutionaries have taken and yeah um and try to put their spin on uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, I find that. And they use, uh, they use the same vocabulary. It's in, well, mm -hmm. of course the meaning it changes. They use they, the language they they use is freedom. It's about pluralism. It's it's diversity. Diversity is a whole concept they use. Well, yeah, can I ask about that one? So this this one right, I found yeah. very, this one was very interesting. Right. So the, it's the harmony through diversity idea. How yeah. is it that Europe is a uh, equilibrium? It's a it's a, a perfect balance. Between yeah. different states that have that can have very different forms of government, different religions, and so on. Yeah, could you yeah unpack that a little bit further? Yeah, that's for one us, of the please. core ideas that Europe has been a civilization which has grown through the ages. And what what it says, it has a certain uniqueness because it's sort of it is a whole, it is a, it's a community, it's a commonwealth, but it's also it also it is incredibly diverse and it has different cultures, civilizations, cities, and that's something you you come across. And this they they they, they say they see this 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 unique diversity, Vielfalt in German. Um, or is being threatened uh, by the revolution. They say, but the, but the revolution, in that sense, they see the revolution as the, the successors of the enlightened philosophy. They say enlightened philosophy and revolution, they want to uh, um, they want to make everything uniform. They want to have one uniform uh, uh, mole for, for, for all ideas. They want just one uniform society. They want to impose their abstract ideas on all uh, societies, on all countries, and they say, no, there's a certain uniqueness which we uh, defend. And what's interesting, of course, nowadays, diversity is above all a, a, a word which is used in more progressive uh, circles. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the 19th century of my period, it's above all a counter-revolutionary concept which is used against revolution. So they say that's one of the threats. Uh, it creates this all-powerful state and they're going to make life uniform and destroy this, this incredible variety which is characterized in Europe. So this whole idea of the notion of unity and diversity, which is, of course, the official motto of the EU today, um, uh, you see this exact wording <laughs> often in the documents, yes. this idea that there is this incredible uh, historically grown diversity, but all part of this this uh, this community of, uh, and again, Edmund Burgess, I think, is a really good example of that, uh, a community, of course, which is often a Christian uh, in a Christian context, almost always. Um, so in that sense, uh, uh, the whole unity in diversity uh, concept, uh, I would say, is a counter-revolutionary uh, uh, idea, which uh, mm -hmm. can be found almost literally in almost the text I've been uh, reading. Mm. So that's interesting. And that, the, in that sense, I'm also a Skinnerian. It's not about the, the, the words themselves, but the words are speech acts. And of course, it's interesting how they use this language. Um, but then for, for agendas, we, we would not seem might not seem possible for our own um, in our perspective. And well, the things I found, I mean, I'm not a political conservative myself. I do not, sometimes I really abhorrent and I do not find them always sympathetic. Mm -hmm. But what I do like about it, this idea that they're often very critical of, of nationalism and patriotism. In that sense, they're very different, I think, from more uh, contemporary conservatives. Is that this idea that they, they're very critical. They see patriotism, nationalism as something of the past. Of antiquity, and they say it's also revolutionaries. Revolutionaries are extreme, are are, are excessive mm -hmm. in their mm. nationalism, and they believe more in a say combination of um, 
of, of the, lo the local, you find this, this idea of a harmony of the local, the regional. One of the people I've been studying was Nicolas Voigt. He was a professor at the University of Mainz. And he said, well, you have Mainz, which is the center of the universe. And then you have the Rhineland. <laughs> and then you have the Holy Roman Empire. And then you have Europe. And you have the world. And you see these scales. And it's scaling up. And in that sense, maybe they can be considered to be uh, cosmopolitans. Because in that sense, they see this harmony between the local, uh, the regional, uh, national, European, and the world. And that's, I think this is the most the part I find most sympathetic uh, yes. of their thoughts. Mm. Uh, this, 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 oh, they're not just uh, uh, glorifying the nation. They wouldn't understand it. And what's interesting, of course, that's that's one of the on one hand. I think you can my my work is a is an is in genealogy of of right wing thought and this idea of a cultural crisis for onset of, uh, as a result of modernity. In that sense, there is a longer lineages. But what's very different from twenty uh, uh, first century conservative is their whole idea of the nation and this idea of a, a pure nation. They, they they would not understand that. They they would say, okay, but this is the that's the revolution. The revolution has won uh, in that sense. So in that sense, of course, if you're doing history, you'll find uh, com com common elements, but also differences. And here here's the difference. Is the very uh, prominent? I would say mm. it's a very different picture to one you might get casually of sort of counter-revolutionaries being romantic nationalists who are battling yeah. against enlightenment universalism there's that kind of this is a the, the cosmopolitan factor and that was that was striking to me i was i, I really wasn't expecting that i was very no and it was also, that was also my surprise and i think that's what i always find interesting in this story and if you're going to look back well, one that you find the origins of ideas, and usually that are much more recent, often, but also I think differences, and also uh, uh, ideas you associate with whole different political parties suddenly appear uh, yeah. on the other side. So, but I said these were not nationalists; they would not understand it. They were regarded nationalism as a, a revolutionary uh, legacy, and which they disliked uh, very much. So, and they said that yeah. they believed that this uh, this nationalism well it very much went against. The idea of a more cosmopolitan European Christian civilization, where many different countries live live together uh, as part of. But uh, I must say, of course, they were also uh, Eurocentrist in the sense that they very much, often, almost all believed in a, a superior European uh, civilization at the same well, time. Well, shall we? I mean, I was going to turn to that right at the end, but should we talk about that now? There's one thing I wanted to go back to though before we jump ahead to something else. Maybe we'll jump ahead to the Europe compared to the extra-European world stuff in a second. I just want to go back to. Uh, the counter-revolutionary has been critical of French philosophic thought. Yeah. But one of the key, it depends on whether you consider Montesquieu a philosopher or not, um, but they do seem, to, there are certain aspects of the, the philosophic circle that they, or certain figures within the circle, they do turn to, right? They do, Montesquieu is repeatedly yeah. used, maybe Montesquieu, yeah, tell me how Montesquieu fits into um, the picture of uh what the counter-revolutionaries are doing. Yeah, so uh, the, what they did with the, the Enlightenment on the one hand is that there was a good, there, there's a good Enlightenment, which we like, which we adopt, and there's a bad Enlightenment, mainly consisting of radical atheists in Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the examples, I think, uh, with Montesquieu, they all, all refer to, Montesquieu is the common element in almost all the texts I've been reading from so many different countries. And of course, they're using Montesquieu for their own uh, advantage. Uh, Montesquieu is being, uh, that, that, that also my, 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 my colleague and friend, uh, Andaline de Dynes, also demonstrated that how mm -hmm. uh, um, Montesquieu can be used for many different uh, agendas, and uh, both for a revolutionary one, as well as a counter-revolutionary one. And, <laughs> but I found interesting, yep. they adapted him uh, um, in many ways, and they also uh, um, emphasize this more conservative uh, nature. 
And for instance, one of my sources, Adam Müller uh, for Germany says, okay, he says, well, we have to make a, a, a Montesquieu 2.0. We have to take elements out of Montesquieu, but we have to adapt it to a new age. And Montesquieu was still very much of the past. So we have, adapted, we have to adapt it more. We have to make it less, uh, we have to take away the revolutionary potential and, and, and make it more into our own uh, image. But uh, yeah, mm. of course, that one of the exciting um, a task of intellectual historian is to demonstrate the malle malleability of intellectual authority. Mm -hmm. and this is a good case. Of course, Montesquieu was used by many different people for different ways. And this is uh, one uh, lineage. It's more conservative, counter-revolutionary lineages. And of course, this whole idea that there's not... Montesquieu was, of course, also critical of that there's not one recipe, there's not one constitution. And this idea of, of, of that there's not one recipe, of course, uh, um, they, they very much uh, liked. But they developed and Later, they said, well, we, we, we're using him, but we have to adapt him. He has to be adapted to a new age. Um, um, they, they often said, well, if he was living in times of revolution, he would have been a counter-revolutionary. So we have to use him uh, uh, for our own uh, agenda. So, But he's always there. He's always there. <laughs> Montesquieu is always with us. Um, yeah. I wonder whether, whether we could... Uh, I'd like to come back to the extra-European stuff uh, towards the end, if that's all right, because sure. I'd like to look at or talk a bit about what happens to counter-revolutionary thought as the, the you know the terror ends and then the revolution seems to become moves into a more moderate phase and the directory turns up and then well let's, let's stick with the directory first um what happens to counter-revolutionary thought as the radicalness of the revolution begins to begins to die down yeah well of course on the one hand it's one of the highlights of this moment 95 99 on the one hand, of course, the terror has demonstrated the, the, the evilness of the revolution. It, it always goes, what they have warned about is how these abstract ideas would have disastrous social mm. political consequences. And of course, now they could point to the terror as, as, as being as, as a vindication of their ideas. Also, of course, they believe that they often mistakenly believe that uh, the, the, the directorate was a moment when they could restore a monarchy. Um, and we see all of, of, of the devoted chapter also to many of the different ideas about the new European order. They say, okay, we the order, old order is destroyed by the revolution, but we have to build a new one. We can use the the history, we can use the the the, the our the past, but we we can perhaps also build an improved uh, version. So there are many different uh, uh, plans for a new European order. Um, by these counter-revolutionaries who believe that, okay, well, uh, uh, we have to rebuild it again, but we have to build it better than before. They, they, they believe that it could make a more improved version of this uh, European order. And is that um, understood as using some of the policies or the constitutions that have been developed in previous years? Is that using the Declaration of the Rights of Man and so on? Is that... Uh, uh, yeah, were they willing to incorporate anything that had happened during the very radical phases of the revolution? No, of course, they, they rejected that, that but, but they believed you have to go back to the ancient constitution, but at the same time, uh, we have to make an improved version. So people said we have to be inspired by the ancient constitution, but the ancient constitutions were not written. So uh, someone, I, I studied also a French, émigré, uh, 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 Alexandre de Calonne, who was a former minister of Louis XVI, and he goes to London, and he becomes a very influential. They're all that's also an interesting part of my book. They're all migrants and refugees, so mm -hmm. they're all they're all migrants that uh, against their will, but they're also uh, uh, refugees, if you will. Um, and he lives in London, and he, he says, "Well, we have to go back to this ancient constitution, but then make a written version out of it." So in that sense, they're on the one hand to say we have to once again connect to our European and national past, but also in a new and improved way. 
we cannot often these people said we cannot just just be reactionary we have to give also an alternative to uh, people that they will turn away from the revolution and one mm -hmm. way is to net is say for guaranteeing rights in a more written form of constitution but then it should be in constitution which was not uh, new construction, uh, uh, but it should be, uh, uh, it should one way, the, the, the chain of time, as they say in France, should be mended in a way. So on one hand, they wanted to restore a continuity, but then an improved version of it. Fantastic. Napoleon turns up, and I suppose Napoleon can be both, um, I could, I, there were different authors have different um, responses to Napoleon. He could see he could be viewed as someone who was going to put an end to the revolution and restore some sort of uh, balance to Europe. And he's also described as sort of the <laughs> the worst case scenario. He is the universal monarch who has come to destroy everything that was good about Europe. I wondered if you could uh, tell us a bit about yeah. how the counter revolutionaries think about Napoleon. Well, especially if you look at my my three chapters on German sources, uh, you see a huge variety. Some people, of of course, see him as the the ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, 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 evil genius who is destroying all uh, diversity. Someone like Gens and also others and Müller. They see him as a person who is just the ultimate uh, uh, um, the ultimate uh, embodiment of the revolutionary uh, uniformity and despotism. This despotic state which creates a uniform uh, a new Roman Empire. Uh, on the other hand, there are also others, uh, for instance, someone like um, Voigt, uh, um, who I discussed earlier. He says, well, he's originally very optimistic about Napoleon. He says, well, Napoleon is, is maybe maybe he's a, a, also a counter-revolutionary. Maybe he's going to be a new Charlemagne, uh, restoring a, a new Europe, which is uh, celebrating diversity, if I can use some anachronistic uh, language uh, here. Um, so it's interesting. They, some people say that we can use Napoleon. He's, he's in fact, uh, he's, the, he's, he's in the tradition of longer historical diversity. Others see him as, an, as, a, as more or less all the evils, what the, what the revolution is, despotic ruler um, who destroys uh, uh, all historical uh, institutions in, in Europe. So there are many different uh, variations. And then, of course, uh, um, when Napoleon unexpectedly collapses, um, that's a very interesting moment because then all those dreams and ideas of an alternative European order which, of course, many of the counter-revolutionaries were publicists, they were writing it. And mm -hmm. certainly this, this Napoleon collapses and there's this opportunity uh, to build a new European order. And uh, some of my, uh, as I said, uh, the Voigt I've been studying was, for instance, the teacher of Metternich. And certainly there's this, this possibility of actually um, using these ideas of a more uh, going back to, an, to, to this historical continuity. Certainly there's the moment that you can actually build the new Europe um, and they start writing and they have huge hopes uh, um, in 1814, 1815, that there will be a, a regenerated this, of course, uh, this idea of that, that, that this corrupt Europe will be regenerated, that this idea of this corruption, which was caused by these extreme radical philosophical ideas, could then be uh, uh, regenerated in a new, uh, spiritually unified, morally Europe. And of course, they're all disappointed by this, uh, by, the, by the results <laughs> of the Vienna Conference. Is there any sense of that there's a sort of a paradox there, though? Is there anyone, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember whether you discussed this, whether this is an idea that came across in your book or not, where there's a, there's a paradox there, because those 25 years have happened, right? The, the previous, the revolution and the Polonic Empire and so on have happened. Um, and if you were to try and return back to that organically developed Europe that you see as being uh, desirable, you're going to have to ignore the previous few decades. 
Uh, was there a cons yeah, was there was there an awareness that they would have to incorporate much of what had happened? They'd have to they're responding to Europe as it is in 1815, which is not the Europe as it was in 1789. Is there an aware awareness that they are in some sense would be having to play the role of creating a new Europe? There's very duality there. On one hand, they say we have to repair the chain of time, we have to, we have to mend this, this rupture, we have to go back to this old, these old values, say, of diversity and, and moderation and freedom and slow development. But on the other hand, they say, okay, uh, the old Europe has died. It, it has died because it was rotten, it was corrupted by, by extreme ideas, by, mm -hmm. by extreme uh, atheism. And if we want to prevent another another revolution, we have to uh, build a, a especially a spiritually and morally regenerated. Of course, uh, uh, this is an idea. Of course, you've also found among contemporary um, those on the right this idea of a rotten continent which needs a regeneration. So they had very high hopes that now, and the, partially these were very religious, but they're also political, moral, cultural. They're all aligned here. And yet there are extreme high hopes in 1814, 1815 that the continent will be will be regenerated and revived. And of course, uh, very soon it turned out that these high hopes are, are not have not been uh, are, are not justified, and they're disappointed what what the Vienna Conference did bring. They thought it was only about power hungry monarchs, and who were not really interested in in, in a cultural and, and moral um, regeneration of Europe. Um. I don't. I feel guilty about asking you the next question. Can you summarize the what happens next? Yeah, <laughs> Can well, you the, like uh, the sort the of chapter, post... actually, I, uh, what happens next? Well, of course, my argument is here. As I said, uh, uh, my argument is here that these ideas. Well, as, uh, originally, of course, I tried to. Uh, my book was originally intended to uh, uh, to to end at the present, but uh, if I want to do that, I probably have to write three volumes about it. Um, but what's interesting is that many of these ideas survive. On the one hand, there is this conservative, traditional conservative Europeanism, which uh, comes out of the Vienna Conference, out of the dissolution with uh, Vienna. Of course, Vienna is often seen as a, a high point of reactionary Europe, but many many of these persons on the, on the right, on the conservative side, were disappointed. And there is this, this whole tradition in the 19th century of conservative Europeanism, which to a certain extent uh, uh, comes to life again after the First World War. Uh, someone like Christopher Dawson in England, but also many other examples, they, they, they have this idea of a regenerated Europe, and, and a diverse Europe, a free Europe, moderate Europe, and all of these ideas almost literally come spring back to life um, uh, after the First and Second World War. In a way, mm. they also inform the people who are building um, the European Union. And of course, nowadays, when we think about the European Union, we think about a, a free market project by economists, but originally, it was a conservative Christian Democrat project, uh, which I think uh, owed a lot, uh, owed huge debt to this to these counter-revolutionary Europeans. So there's one, uh, I think, a very important forgotten uh, lineage. And I think, especially now, we, we overestimate the economic uh, interpretation of the EU, whereas above all, it was seen also as a spiritual uh, project by uh, especially Christian Democrats. And uh, also, secondly, what's interesting that many of these counter-revolutionary ideas are also adopted by those of other ideologists. Uh, for instance, socialists, Saint-Simonists, uh, mm. also uh, adopted ideas, for instance, from someone like Joseph Tomestre, a counter-revolutionary. So we see also these ideas are also being adopted and, and being revived by socialists, by liberals, uh, uh, too. So I think we should, of course, not make this, uh, uh, of course, most of the new research shows that these different ideologies, they're often very permeable. They have different, they don't have 
very strict ideological boundaries. So we see these ideas, and of course, I didn't have time to, to really uh, research all of this, but also for socialists, even communists, there are ideas of uh, historical uh, Europeanism can be found. Uh, also liberals uh, are, are even found some English uh, historians who are adopting, they're often in contact here with, with the French and German uh, historians. So these ideas survive in different guises, uh, um, among liberal, socialist, and also conservative uh, Europeanist uh, tradition. And I think this is often overlooked. When you think about the 19th century, it's always the century of the nation state or the nation of empire. And I think that's all true, but there's more to that. And there's often this 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 idea of a conservative Europeanism, which is there as well, and it forms those ideas, which I think is often uh, overlooked in our contemporary um, interpretation of, of the 19th century. I think you have to write those books. I think you have to write yeah, those books. Yeah, I think I said the 19th century is also, and not only the century of revolution, but also the century of counter-revolution. I think someone like uh, uh, Chris Clark, who has written this beautiful book on 1848, mm -hmm. he, that's more or less the what revolutionary he says. He says the legacy yeah. of 1848 was above all that it was uh, adopted by, by these, these conservatives, by the Bismarcks of this world. And it's the, the conservatives who take over in the 1850s, they adopt 1848. So I think if you want to study um, uh, European history, but also global history, we should not only look at revolution, but also counter-revolution, because they're very much intertwined. And uh, that's uh, my book is a contribution to that uh, to that more in inclusive uh, history writing <laughs> in a different way. <laughs> mm. I, can't, I, I do want to return to this theme. So we've got one eye on the time. This has been fantastic. But I do want to talk about uh, how are counter-revolution Europeans as they're thinking about the de historical development of European uh, of Europe sorry are thinking about the non-European world I want to how yeah, they yeah, compare and contrast because yeah. it's one it's another one of these points where yeah. they don't end up being the horrific defenders and or justifiers of colonialism in which you might expect that you know that, that they are yeah cr critics of European imperialism quite often but yes I'll, I'll leave that up to you yeah, that's, that's really a fascinating part. I think there's much more to be said about that. I know there's a lot of really fascinating research in the last decades about, mostly about liberal imperialism. Uh, people like, uh, I know, Jennifer Pitts, but Sankar Mutu, others, of course, have, and they've made this very neat distinction between more 18th century criticism of, of uh, uh, um, empire and 19th century liberal defense of, of empire, which is, uh, I envy them for such a very uh, uh, clear uh, conclusion, because I didn't could not receive such a, uh, a clear conclusion from my own sources. Some of my sources actually defended imperialism. They saw it as part of the, 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 the civilizing mission they had to do as Christians, whereas others were much more critical. They said, well, um, this idea that you have to create one uniform world, and they were uh, defending this idea of cultural uh, diversity. And it's, it's interesting. And someone like another person I've studied, Arnold Heeren, who was a uh, professor at the University of Göttingen, for instance, well, he was very critical of, uh, on one hand, he was very critical of um, European imperialism. He said it's only about money and it, it has disastrous consequences for the, for the indigenous uh, people. At the same time, he said, well, why don't we make uh, Egypt into a pan-European colony as well? So uh, it, it, I found it very, I could not <laughs> find one yeah. clear conclusion. I think topics, I think we have been studying too much uh, revolutionary imperialism or liberal imperialism. I think we have to look at those counter-revolutionary conservative imperialism. And uh, as I said, I could not find one simple mm. conclusion, but I think there's much more to be said. Also, uh, the concept like race and counter-revolution is also really interesting, but these are all, I think, all uh, uh, still uh, um, uh, wide fields which are open. And 
uh, to make a very maybe a big leap. Uh, for instance, uh, the colleagues and friends of mine have been studying um, royalism, and what's what's interesting, for instance, how indigenous indigenous peoples in South America often supported the monarchy and supported royalism, and not the insurgents or not the revolutionaries. So. There are many different levels and layers to be uh, seen. Uh, and not again, because I'm such a huge fan of uh, counter-revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not my goal here. But I find this is a whole field which, which makes a much for a deeper and layered um, history. And I think that's what intellectual historians are for. That's what they should do. Another, uh, I thought was interesting. It happened, it came up on occasion, as I was reading through, uh, that... Other Britain was often excluded from Europe. Yeah. Britain is seen as being this absolutely money-focused, evil, imperial nation. Yeah. Uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that. I was interested that yeah, Britain is not part of this uh, European equilibrium uh, praised by many of your authors. Well, uh, it's double. On the one hand, of course, but on one hand, I think what, what is interesting, I think, which is often ignored is how, to what extent, British authors are often much more European. I think someone like Eppenberg, mm -hmm. but I also studied Henry Hallam, was an historian, uh, a historian, and he also writes about European history. But it's true, Britain is often seen as a as a, as an as as, as uh, like something indeed which is outside of Europe, which pretends to be uh, a free uh, uh, empire, pretends to be uh, defending freedom, but is in fact much more despotic uh, and is in fact destroying freedom. So that's the idea of hypocrisy is really important in the mm -hmm. in the in European stereotyping, and of course, especially in Napoleonic age, it becomes really uh, important. Was this idea the, of uh, yeah, just, this, was this was idea it... from this fake freedom, this this idea that that it always supposed to be about freedom. But in reality, it's not. It's it's an empire of despotism. It has been mm -hmm. called by uh, um, by. Uh, um, but then again, it also, as, as I said, it, I think in the restoration, of course, the, there's there's of course much more European moment uh, uh, in Britain and, and a much more British moment. Uh, there is, of course, when Wellington is reordering the European continent, and of yeah. course there is uh, people like Wellington and also uh, um, also other uh, someone like Castle Ray, of course, who is the British. They were they, those were really. European moment. So I think after the collapse of Napoleon, there is a, a truly uh, British European uh, moment uh, for a short time. And the Brits also have this idea that they should be in Europe and they, they have an important role to play. And well, uh, again, the app and the tides of uh, British Europeanism, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> again, there's nothing nothing new under the sun as we... Uh... Indeed. Um, well, I think we will end there. So the book is Europe Against Revolution, Conservatism, Enlightenment and the Making of the Past, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Dr. Matthijs Locke, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, uh, Robin, for this uh, very nice interview.